0: You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda, recording from Washington, D.C. And so uh, by popular demand, I think it'll be not too surprising to our listeners that we will be talking about the new alliance in Asia, or really the the old new alliance in Asia, which is the newly announced Australia-UK-United States arrangement uh, known by its acronym of AUKUS, which I'm still getting used to saying out loud, but uh, I'm sure I'll get more acclimated to it with time. Um, but before we get into our chat today, I do want to introduce our guest, uh, who should be familiar to some of our listeners, given that he's a returner, uh, Ashley Townshend, uh, joining us from Sydney, uh, where he's at the United States Studies Center, uh, follows uh, all things Indo-Pacific, all things US-Australia quite closely. So, Ash, welcome back to the show.
1: Thanks for having me, Ankit.
0: Pleasure to have you. Uh, I'm sure uh, you've uh, had quite your fill of talking about AUKUS at this point, but um, I'm hoping that we can dig into things a little bit more. And, you know, the benefit of doing this podcast uh, a little bit more than a week and a half since the original announcement is that we have slightly more details than we did at the start. Um, but, you know, let me just begin by just laying out the groundwork on what exactly AUKUS is. It's a new trilateral partnership uh, between uh, two countries that were U.S. allies before this announcement. Now it's a formally trilateral cooperative arrangement. I'm sure a lot of our listeners have, of course, heard about the Banner um, AUKUS outcome, uh, which is plans for Australia to acquire a nuclear-propelled submarine uh, at some point in the future, probably in the early 2040s if we're being realistic, but uh, official plans potentially uh, envisage something coming in sooner. Um, But I do want to emphasize, Ash, and this is perhaps a good place to begin our conversation, uh, which is that there's a lot more to this arrangement. Uh, It's not just just the three countries getting together and uh, you know, coming down with this idea of Australia acquiring uh, SSNs, as uh, nuclear-propelled submarines are known for short. Um, but tell us a little bit about the contours of the AUKUS arrangement. What exactly is is being uh, offered up here to Australia, and what does Australia gain out of AUKUS?
1: That's a great place to start, Ankit, because it's true that AUKUS is being called an alliance, um, and that's a term that I think gets used far too easily in a range of contexts these days, but AUKUS is not an alliance. Um, a, a formally it's it's called a trilateral security partnership, uh, but they've even added the word enhanced in front of trilateral to signify that nothing here is really altogether new. The new goody for Australia really is that we will have access, as you say, to US uh, nuclear propulsion technology for future submarines, but beyond that, the AUKUS arrangement is really designed to be a framework for closer defence um, and defence industrial technology sharing between the three countries. And in that sense, AUKUS builds on a lot of what um, has been happening slowly in the past although i would wager hasn't been happening particularly well when it comes to bringing australia and the united kingdom into the u.s national technology and industrial base which was a 2017 decision by the united states which was designed really to try and find a way to create at the at the end of the day a, a defence free trade zone, uh, but really to integrate the niche uh, industrial and technology capabilities, potential for them, science and technology processes, and so forth between all three countries, so that we had um, a, a larger. And therefore, more active and more potentially competitive uh, defence technology industrial base uh, when compared with uh, with that that the China that the Chinese have and are expanding on quickly. So, look, that's I think the context for it. AUKUS um, has been put to me by by a number of Australians as being a a way of, for Australia to go shopping. To co-develop products with the UK and the US, but to go shopping for the kinds of capabilities that we haven't got, that we believe we may need in the future. And they will touch um, uh, on a range of uh, sort of areas of critical and emerging technology from cyber, artificial intelligence, quantum, and so forth, with the submarines being the piece of that that got the headlines.
0: Right. And, and you know, I mean, just to go over the fact sheets that have been released so far, and just to put in specific terms for listeners, right, we have everything from, uh, you know, quantum technologies, artificial intelligence, cybersecurity, quantum Cooperation. Australia purchasing long-range missiles, setting up its own sovereign uh, industrial base to build long-range weaponry uh, standoff capabilities uh, to uh, bring to the conventional fight in Asia in the future. So, there, so there's a lot here. And, you know, I mean, Ash. the next question, And and everything yeah.
1: that you just mentioned, there. Anke, just just to, to jump in, yeah. is not necessarily. Um, uh, coming through AUKUS, nor does it necessarily require it. Uh, Australia, prior to the establishment of AUKUS, I mean, at last year's Osmin, was really keen on US support for the establishment mm-hmm. of um, our own sovereign capability to manufacture long range missiles here. Uh, and there have been previous ex- examples of co development in the hypersonic space that's already ongoing. So AUKUS will allow us if all goes to plan, to do that just a lot better.
0: Right. Yeah, I mean, that word you emphasized at the start, you know, the enhanced component of this cooperation is, I think, quite significant. Uh, Because at this point, you know, if we'd been having this conversation a few months ago or last year, uh, you know, it's, yeah, I mean, you know, last time I had you on the show, we were talking about the defense strategic update. And that's absolutely right that this is really an extension of where strategic thinking was already going in Australia. Absolutely. But in in a sense, what AUKUS does, at least from where I'm sitting, is it It heightens the ceiling of where this cooperation can go, and I think that's quite significant. Um, And look, we've already talked for a few minutes without really talking about submarines in details, but let's go a little bit longer on this point because you know I wanted to sort of uh, draw draw out that uh, point that I just raised about this being um, more sort of a demonstration of continuity in Australian strategic thought than anything else. And you know you wrote an article for the Australian Strategic Policy Institute uh, that I read, and I recommend to our listeners uh, that really puts this in context and I think ties it back to uh, what we discussed last time you were on the podcast with the Defense Strategic Update. Uh, so, tell us a little bit about you know the bigger geopolitical picture here, right? Shifting threat perceptions in Australia, difficult relations with China, uh, a a shifting assessment of the conventional deterrence challenges to come in the Indo-Pacific in the coming years. So, uh, where where does this come from then? When it um, you know when we look at the discussions that are happening in Canberra, because American officials have said AUKUS was primarily an Australian idea. Uh, the U.S. and the U.K. were happy to go along given the strength of the alliance, but really the birth, the genesis of this concept uh, came from Canberra.
1: That's exactly right, and you are 100% correct to couch the entire AUKUS developments and also um, the other announcements around U.S. force posture initiatives that got little attention by comparison that came through at the two plus two meeting in washington the other week um in the broader framework of australia's 2020 defense strategic update i would go even further back and and say that really all of this begins in the 2017 foreign policy white paper but but to keep it simple um both of those strategic documents um, um, from an Australian perspective, did a couple of things. first, um at, at increasing levels of 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 anxiety, they argued that the the strategic environment in Asia was rapidly deteriorating, and that one way or another the United states, by itself would no longer be able to uphold um, that a strategic order by itself and that therefore Australia and other like-minded capable and committed regional partners would need to do um, increasingly more in order to build out the capacity to uphold a favourable balance of power. So the way I like to put this is that Australia for the last four or five years has been on a trajectory towards um, 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 willingly taking part in a collective balance of power strategy for the future of Indo-Pacific order. The Defence Strategic Update uh, took that to another level um, by really um, uh, arguing that Australia would need to acquire the capabilities uh, not just to shape the strategic environment, which is a piece that I still don't think we're necessarily doing enough in, but to deter and respond at a, at a high-intensity military level in the future to Chinese power, both independently uh, but also in coalitions, including through the US alliance, but also with the new regional architecture that is Emerging in the defense space, most importantly, the trilateral with Japan and the Quad. Um, the defense update, of course, doesn't name China specifically in those terms, but it was a document um, that was very transparent on that point. Uh, the, the key thing about uh, the alliance and the pursuit by Australia of a collective balance of power strategy in the region is that Australia needs the alliance in order to empower us to be independently able. To- to contribute more effectively to that strategic future that we envisage. Uh, and by that, I mean, Australia needs technology transfer, it needs technical know-how, it needs you know, investment in posture here on the continent in order to bulk out our strategic capacity for action in terms of our military power, but also in terms of our logistics sustainment base and, 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 uh, and, and frankly, um, technical, Um, industrial base in a personnel sense. AUKUS will allow us to start to do uh, those things more quickly it will allow us to do them trilaterally with the Brits and the Americans um, to take existing partnerships to another level but above all of this I think the key point is that Australia is repositioning itself in terms of its strategic personality and in terms of the contribution that it is willing to make to balance of power politics in the region in a fairly dramatic way and in a way that we haven't really seen, um, at least since the 1960s.
0: Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, also on the on the U.S. side, at least here in Washington, I mean, uh, you know, we, d- we do see a fundamental shift in, uh, you know, both Democrats and Republicans, I think, coming around the notion that the U.S. needs to do more to empower its allies, uh, primarily because, I mean, not just because of the inability of the United States to carry all of the burdens of maintaining a favorable balance of power in the Indo-Pacific region uh, all on our own, but it's not just Australia. I mean, I think AUKUS is the best example so far in the Biden era of this sort of thinking. Uh, but, you know, you can look at the, uh, the scrapping of the revised missile guidelines with South Korea. Uh, continued support for Japan, developing an autonomous uh, strike cap- uh, capability itself. Um, and you and you start to see this uh, picture really come together across the region. Um, okay, I mean, you know, we, we went about 10 minutes, but now, you know, let's get to those submarines. Let's talk a little bit about the SSNs that have been getting all the headlines. And of course, you know, the elephant in the room, uh, who we haven't mentioned yet, is the French. Of course, uh, you know, there is no such thing as a free lunch in geopolitics. And uh, the French, unfortunately, got the... Uh, the, uh, the rough side of this deal in many ways. Uh, although, you know, I am slightly sympathetic to the French case, given that the August 30th joint statement at the 2 plus 2 did mention how much Australia and France were looking forward to their mutual cooperation on the future submarine project. Uh, and just for listeners, you know, very quickly to provide context, we don't have to go into the details. Australia was due to purchase uh, conventionally powered submarines from France, which uh, was a decision taken as part of the Collins class replacement project after a competition in which Germany, Japan and France were the finalists. That decision was ultimately scrapped uh, through AUKUS there's a variety of reasons we can go into that domestic politics cost overruns a, a fundamental reassessment of the uh, utility of conventional submarines uh, in the waters of the Indo-Pacific. But, Ash, I mean, tell us a little bit here in practical terms. I mean, what do what do nuclear propulsion submarines bring to the table here for Australia?
1: I mean, we've got to go back to the point about the strategic environment um, deteriorating more quickly than government anticipated, and and you know the French submarine deal, um, although it's not quite as long as this, really goes back to almost a decade of of wrangling in australia over how it's going to uh, replace the collins class and how it's going to prepare for a much more contested regional order and and it seems that really decisions canberra has taken time and time again have been mugged by reality leading to um, a a a step up in 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 this case of of a technology choice um, by successive governments. So when it comes to the to the choice now to acquire nuclear propulsion for our submarines, I think it really comes down to those things that we're familiar to most of your listeners. The fact that nuclear-powered submarines will allow Australia to traverse much greater distances in the Indo-Pacific. They will allow Australia to be. Um, much more survivable in a contested regional order, Um, um, and they will also allow Australia um, to pack uh, greater lethality onto its platforms, both in terms of the payloads that they can carry, the way that they can support, um, of course, also intelligence, special operations, and so forth. Um, The key point, I think, for Australia, though, in, in stating all of those those points is this, Australia started to well, became convinced uh, that conventionally powered submarines, submarines that had to surface in order to recharge their batteries um, intermittently and had to return to Australia to refuel um, 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 at, at much greater uh, frequency. Um, they wouldn't be able to they wouldn't allow Australia to spend the time on station that is the time on operations in parts of the region where Australia feels it will probably need to spend a lot of time in the future that being uh, principally the South China Sea and the littoral environment in Southeast Asia that sort of frame Australia's northern approaches uh, but also further afield um, potentially as far north as the first island chain the northern part of that obviously people like to talk about Taiwan I don't want to be misinterpreted by saying that Australia decision here is motivated by our um, decision to be as useful as possible in a Taiwan contingency. That's not the case here. The calculations have much more to do with the forward defence perimeter, if you like, that Australia has reset in the 2020 defence strategic update in littoral um, and maritime Southeast Asia. But of course, it is also true to say that nuclear-powered submarines would allow Australia to bring more to a Northeast Asian fight than conventionally powered submarines would. So bottom line here, it gives Australia more options. Up- but it gives Australia more capacity to spend time um, 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 defending uh, the waterways and potentially um, imposing costs on Chinese forces, were they to embark on aggression in those waterways uh, further to Australia's north for longer and in a safer way.
0: So when we talk about the Royal Australian Navy's nuclear propulsion submarines, we're of course talking about a fairly distant future, a future in which you and I will both be older and wiser. and the only reason I bring that up is uh, a lot of the debates that we have around uh, requirements for force posture in the Indo-Pacific and the United States, uh, conventional deterrence concerns, are fundamentally concerned with short-term challenges, uh, the 2020s, the early 2030s. Um, And, you know, I mean, uh, just to uh, just to clarify for listeners, uh, if Australia had proceeded with the French conventional submarines, those would have probably arrived by the mid 2030s, assuming no further delays or cost overruns. The nuclear propulsion submarines end of the 2020 uh, end of the 2030s in the most optimistic projections at the moment, more realistically, probably early 2040s. So that gives a lot of time for things to go very wrong in the in the Indo Pacific, particularly given um, what we've seen from Xi Jinping's China. So, Ash, I mean, let me put this other question to you, right? I mean, so people have made the case here. uh, So there's sort of two sides of Aka's criticism that I just want to broadly get at, right? On the one hand, you sort of have uh, the non-proliferation critique, which we're not going to get into here just because... It's a it, it's a very technical debate uh, that you know requires getting into the details of the international um, you know safeguard system for highly enriched uranium. We also just don't have a lot of details at this point uh, because uh, the next twelve to eighteen months will be the period in which the three uh, countries um, uh, the three AUKUS countries figure out how exactly this is going to work in sort of legal and practical terms. But then on the other side of the ledger, you have folks really making the case that you know Canberra's Australian dollars would have been much better spent on. A different package of platforms, right? It's fine and good that Australia is going to be buying tomahawks and uh, you know investing in um, AI ISR systems, cyber capabilities. Uh, a lot of that could manifest uh, in the 2020s. Uh, but you know, um, unmanned um, unmanned undersea vehicles, surface warships, uh, increasing lethality in other ways. Um, so how how do you sort of you make sense of that, right? I mean, because you just can't get around this issue that these boats aren't going to be the, aren't going to be in the water for a very long time. Do you yeah. think that, you know, I mean, just, just in terms of, you know, your views as an analyst, uh, I mean, was this really the best way for Australia to go with this decision? Um, or, or do you think that there might have been other investments that could have made more sense in the short term?
1: without uh, you know adopting Chinese uh, talking points here, I don't think it's appropriate necessarily to place these choices as binaries, uh, right? Uh, when we're looking at the decision to acquire the best possible submarine capability for the future, for the replacement of an existing capability, you know and and that legacy system that that will exist and be, Um, uh, be operational through at least to the late 2030s um, um, on the one hand and on the other hand investing in other new um, more um, more quickly accessible and more quickly operational capabilities they're not binary choices Australia is looking at options for um, underwater autonomous vehicles Australia is looking and building um, um, capabilities here in country in, in um, autonomous aerial vehicles, right? I think um, um, the loyal wingman program that Lockheed and the Royal Australian Air Force is undertaking um, in, um, uh, in in Queensland is a great example of that. Um, there are a range of other programs and certainly there's a range of other capability options that are being um, uh, looked at by government or flagged last year in the force structure plan that we'll see other things happen in the long two decades before these submarines become operational so i think that's the first point Uh, the second point is you know what is australia's strategy for managing the gap the the 2020s 2030s gap between when these real high-end capabilities come online um, uh, uh, for you know under australian sovereign control i think there you need to look at the force posture initiatives the way that australia um, um, is looking to support the strongest possible forward U.S. military presence in the Indo-Pacific, which is uh, really um, a a phrase that has been used in Australian white papers going back years and years, um, but really now putting meat on that bone. Um, The Osmin meeting in washington uh, 10 days ago um, again as i said before a lot of this was overlooked um, but flagged that the united states and australia will embark on a whole range of new land air and sea basing arrangements including sustainment arrangements for submarine and surface ships of allied countries including the united states and britain um, we suspect and of course we also suspect including the more frequent visiting to australia of uh, u.s nuclear-powered submarines um, and in the interim or at some point in the next uh it, it, later this 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 decade the capacity for those submarines to be maintained and service in a much deeper way here in Australia that could also be extended to the Brits and people are also talking about leasing arrangements um, or at least uh, sort of teaming arrangements uh, that would see Australian personnel either on board with uh, in, in, for educational purposes and training purposes, uh, as well as for operational purposes, uh, U.S. and British submarines to learn the ropes in, the, in this long intervening period. So there are arrangements in place. I think there that we will see more of as as we work out how we're going to go ahead with this with this program.
0: Yeah. Sorry. Um. Go. Ahead.
1: Sorry. Go. Go.
0: Okay, so uh, you know, I just wanted to pivot a little bit now, uh, just before uh, you know we we run out of time on this episode, to talk a little bit about the regional reaction, um, right? So obviously the reaction from Beijing has been quite uh, predictable, you know, Cold War thinking, uh, blocks and alliances, uh, trying to contain China and so forth. Um, but the reaction from um, you know Southeast Asia has been quite notable, I think, uh, with you know obviously um, there are a variety of views on the. The so-called, you know, great power competition in the Indo-Pacific among the member states of ASEAN, uh, but Indonesia, you know, uh, an important diplomatic partner for Australia, for instance, was, um, I think it's fair to say, a little bit concerned uh, in uh, with regard to what exactly AUKUS represented. And I'm sure this is going to occupy a lot of diplomatic energy uh, for Australia in the coming months and years, particularly over this next 18-month period, as the details on the SSN program are being uh, hammered out. Uh, what's your sense about the right way in which Australia should be approaching uh, Southeast Asian partners uh, on on AUKUS and sort of the significance of this new arrangement? So
1: there are a number of ways of getting after that question, Ankit. I think the first, um, and to, to highlight my, my colleague Susanna Patton's work on this, the first is that Australia does need to take Southeast Asian reactions um, seriously and not assume that it's necessarily comes down to posturing for domestic consumption or wanting to be seen by China or others to oppose um, or, or to be cautious about uh, the the AUKUS arrangement and the nuclear-powered submarines that we're acquiring, and to actually take those concerns um, at face value and, and understand them and 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 not dismiss them. That's important because for Australia, and going back to the to the 2020 defence update, uh, Southeast Asia is, if you like, our first island chain. It's the it's the perimeter um, um, of Australia's. Um, forward defence line in the region and for Australia it is the sovereignty the the stability of that region uh, that will be integral we think to our security Um, and so the character of regional order there matters if countries in the region uh, view Australia as uh, not inclusive or view Australia as pursuing things without their um consent is the wrong word but their their you know knowledge and and uh and buy-in then that will be problematic for us in other ways mm-hmm. I, I think the second point is you know that there is no single asean view on this uh uh you know we we've obviously seen um uh, some real concern expressed by Malaysia um, to, to a lesser extent Indonesia but on the flip side we've seen a quite significant endorsement from the Philippines and at least cautious endorsement from Singapore so once again there is no ASEAN position on on this issue as is the case with so many issues um, uh, in, in you know regional security that's not surprising I think that gets us to the third point which is that Australia always needs to do its its due diligence and its consultation processes as early as possible and as, and as deeply as possible when it comes to engaging with the region. Now, Australia did that really well last year when it announced a much more forward leaning um, defence update. And broadly speaking, the region endorsed that in many cases publicly. Of course, that wasn't possible with this AUKUS arrangement, given the stakes, given uh, the fact that we were pulling out of an existing deal with the French and so forth, that kind of warning was not possible. Um, So I think it's incumbent on Australia now to make sure that there is a very, very detailed process of consultation to ensure that uh, regional countries understand the motivations there. But I think that they do, um, in many cases at least. And the one point that I'll I'll end with here is this, Um, 20 years ago, Um, it wouldn't necessarily have been the case that this sort of move by Australia wouldn't be viewed as intimidating, um, um, potentially directed towards countries in the region, potentially um, uh, Indonesia being at the top of that list. That is not the case anymore. So regional countries may have concerns with the way they've been consulted, with the way that Australian actions might contribute to a broader deterioration in a regional security environment, but they don't anymore view this as Australia potentially looking to find its security from them. It's a way that Australia contributes to the security of the region and how it does that, which is the issue. That signals a lot of progress.
0: And so before we close out, Ash, I have to ask you about France, Uh, right? I mean, the French are obviously, I I think it's well known to all of our listeners, given that's really been, I think, at least here in the United States, I've been quite shocked to see just how big uh, the story became. I mean, people who really take no interest in Asian geopolitics have been asking me, well, you know, what's going on between France and Australia. Um, you know, the French see themselves as a resident power in the Indo-Pacific. They like to uh, repeatedly highlight that they have the most exclusive economic zone of any external power. Uh, important partner for Australia, of course. Before uh, all of this went down, important pa- uh, partner for the United States, for the UK, for obviously the most forward-leading uh, EU country in the region. Um, how do you patch things up at this point?
1: So the the first point I think is is to just you know re- reiterate the obvious, which is you know because AUKUS is not about strategic policy, it's not actually about um, the way we align with other countries and do things in the region. It's about a, a technical. Um, uh, a means to purchase equipment it's a it's a it's a defense technology partnership Uh, it doesn't signal that Australia wants to do any more or any less with France as we were before Uh, I think that's an important point it might sound a bit like a defensive talking point uh, uh, from someone in Australia of course uh, but it's an important point because Australia's decision here was motivated primarily by the capabilities in question and as a secondary um, uh, part of that the fact that the French submarine program um, was already nearly dead in the water. It was the worst kept secret in Australia that that particular program was not going to exist or continue to exist in its current form. What the replacement would be and how Australia was going to get out of that was very much open to question. We now know why there was so much secrecy surrounding those discussions and options, but the French submarine program was not going to continue. It was incumbent on Australia to find an alternative, and I think that that does need to be remembered. The second point here that I would make is that there there has been enormous progress with regard to Australia, France, cooperation um, and and partnership in the indo-pacific and more broadly with australia and European countries um, speaking personally uh, at the same uh, you know on, on this on these matters though uh, it's not necessarily clear to, to, to many of us here in Australia what those what that cooperation will mean in practice when it comes to accepting cost and risk in the indo-pacific now when it comes to the way that European partners can can work with Australia to contribute to capacity building in the region to contribute regional governments and diplomacy to contribute to things like technical standards um, uh, and and global forums and so forth there is a very very um, um, important and, and growing work agenda but when it comes to um the kind of the way that for example that australia japan and the united states are trying to work together at a military level the way that the us and australia work together on intelligence cooperation the way that we are increasingly trying to integrate not just our our talking points about the region but the way that we could potentially fight a major war in asia that to me doesn't seem like um, the role for europe here so i think that that also needs to be brought in mind that the way Europe engages in the Indo-Pacific may not be on every single issue and that that's okay. There is certainly value in those other issues and that is perhaps where we should be investing the most of our attention going forward.
0: Excellent. Well, Ashley, thank you so much for joining me today to really help make sense of the finer points of AUKUS. And, you know, I am really glad that we spent most of the time talking not about the submarines, but really about the broader significance here. Um, You know, I think there should be a lot more to say about the submarines once we're, you know, well into this 12 to 18 month period and we start getting details about capabilities, timelines, uh, infrastructure, uh, supporting infrastructure in Australia. um, And, uh, you know, at least what, what I've been able to tell so far is that a lot of that needs to be worked out. Um, But we do have a high level announcement. And, you know, I think it's particularly notable to see this uh, coming out in the aftermath of the US withdrawal from Afghanistan. It's the administration really, I think, showing that, you know, they are going to try to make good on this notion of the Indo-Pacific being the priority theater for for the United States. Um, But I'm sure, you know, there'll be a lot more to say on AUKUS uh, in the coming months and years. But uh, thanks a lot for joining me. And I hope you'll be back soon.
1: Thanks, it's been a pleasure. Excellent.
0: For listeners, make sure you subscribe so you can catch up with future episodes. And if you've been a subscriber for a while, but you haven't yet left us a review, please do so. You can do that on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Spotify, wherever you get your shows. In the meantime, thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back soon with more.